0: Again, everybody, there we go. That was nice. That was a lot of you. I like that. Uh, so we're going to continue our series in the book of Second Corinthians as we look at this truth about who God says we are not what the world says we are, not what our family says we are, not what our friends say we are, but who God says we are. What is our eternal identity? And then, in that, what is our eternal role? What are we called to do with our lives? I think that's a huge question. Most of us have asked at some point of, what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I going to do? I remember sitting in the high school guidance counselor's office and they're like, what do you want to do with your life? And my only thought was, whatever it takes to get me out of science class. Like, you're asking a 16 year old, I don't know. So a lot of us, we've asked, right, what am I supposed to do with my life? Second Corinthians lays just this beautiful eternal roll out for us that then helps us figure out, okay, how am I supposed to approach my earthly roles? Whatever job I have in this life, whatever neighborhood I find myself in this life, how am I supposed to approach that with my eternal identity given from God, with my eternal role given from God? How am I supposed to approach this temporary life? And so we've been looking at these things throughout this letter of Second Corinthians, and then underneath it all, what we've come back to time and time again is the power of God in all of these things, that if we try and do this life on our own, we're going to fail. We're gonna fall short. We're not going to measure up if we try and go through it on our own, if we try and just white knuckle our way through it, if we try and do it relying on our own strength to fix ourselves. But when we look at 2 Corinthians, we see the power of God is possible for all these things. The power of the Holy Spirit specifically gets mentioned frequently, and we're gonna to continue to see those themes as we read through this next section. We're gonna be in 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, the first 13 verses. I was talking with some of the team this morning. We could honestly probably have spent like three weeks in the first verse alone. Uh, There's so much beauty in this chunk of the letter. But if you would, please, not out of obligation, not because you have to, but out of respect, would you stand for God's word? As we recognize that he is Lord and, and this is his word to us. This is 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listen to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurances, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we had the opportunity to sing songs, praising you for what you have done for us, that we got to use our voices to to praise you and to celebrate you for the price you paid for us, that you washed us clean, that you have redeemed us, you have saved us. And now, thank you that we have an opportunity to praise you with our minds, that we have an opportunity to listen to your word, to be sharpened by it, to be changed by it, to submit to it, to allow what you have said to pierce us, to make us look more like Jesus. Thank you that we have this chance to continue to praise you. So may you lead this time, God. May you speak. May you teach us. May you open our ears and our hearts to understand. May Jesus be glorified in this conversation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So first, before we dive into, you know, this this big idea in this chunk of verses, before we dive into this kind of the meat of 1 to 13 and meat in terms of an idea that really you need to sink your teeth into, that you need to chew on, that you need to work through. Let's do some quick hits. Because like I said, this is an incredible passage with some really beautiful truths, and I don't want to just gloss over them entirely. Did you catch in verse 1 how this passage opened? Working together with Him. Working together with Jesus. One of the coolest experiences of my life was when I got to go to the original Yankee stadium, the house that Ruth built, right? The place of legends. And we got to go, my, my dad won this prize and we got to go down on the field and we got to have a, a clinic from the Yankee coaches. Like we were working with the coaches of the Yankees to improve on our hitting and our running and our fielding and stuff. Like that was cool to get to work with the Yankees coaches. Did you catch when the Bible says working with Jesus? You and I are co-laborers with Jesus. We are working alongside the Lord of the universe, and that's because he extends that to us. That's cool. Don't gloss over that. Don't miss out on that, and don't think that it's on our own power. We're working with him. And then the second quick hit in verse 1, it says, don't receive the grace of God in vain. The Bible's clear in several places that sadly tragically it's possible for Christians to live very ineffective lives tragically it's possible for someone who is genuinely saved to then do nothing with it to not allow God to change their life to not work for him to not live for him to not have any impact for him don't don't receive the grace of God in vain Do something with this gift you've been given. Do something with this privilege, this right, this honor, this opportunity that has been bestowed upon you. By the grace of God and by His power, may that not be true of us. May it never be said that we received the grace of God in vain. We did nothing with it. And then the final quick thought in this passage, and we won't reread all of these verses, but they were the verses where he laid out hardship, affliction, calamity. I was poor. I was hungry. I didn't sleep well. Like, I was, I was attacked in so many different ways. I suffered in so many ways. Uh, verses 4 to 10. Remember the context of this letter that we've talked about. So Paul wrote this letter to a church that was dealing with a couple false teachers trying to actively undermine his ministry. So Paul's teaching them one thing, and you've got these other voices to the side saying, Paul's a phony, Paul's fake, Paul's a sham, don't listen to him. He's not telling you the truth. Like, they're actively trying to undo Paul's ministry in this group of people. And so Paul is just laying out for them in these verses, hey, here's evidence that I'm living for Christ. Here's proof that I am living the life I claim to. Like, this validates me as an apostle. You can see the fruit, you can see the patience. So he lays out all these hardships, he lays out all these difficulties, but then once he go on and he says, with purity, with patience, with the Holy Spirit, with genuine love, and so he's saying in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of things going wrong and blowing up, I'm still living in a godly way, like this gives weight to my claims. And I think the lesson in those those verses 4 to 10 is, is quite simple, that our lives should back up our message. I cannot stand the phrase, well, I'll do as I say, not as I do. Well, no, because if you really believed it, you'd do it too. Paul is saying, look, you can accuse me of being a fake apostle. You can accuse me of not living for Jesus. You can accuse me of all these things. But the evidence of my life points to the sincerity of what I'm telling you, points to the genuineness of my message. So in verses 4 through 10, I think we see this very, very physical, stark reminder that our lives should add weight, should lead credibility to the message we proclaim. And now we get to the heart of this, that message we proclaim. How do we do it? What is it? What is he talking about in this passage that is so significant? What's he say in verse 3? He says, we put no obstacles in anyone's way. Let me read it again, verse 3. We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Isn't that kind of an odd thing to consider? Jesus is, is the way, the truth, the life. We talk about heaven's gates being wide open. We just sang about, you know, the Father's arms are wide open. Why are we not talking about obstacles? That seems to be the opposite of of everything good because we have to understand obstacles we have to understand truths about obstacles and the first truth when he says we put no obstacles in anyone's way the first unavoidable truth about the gospel is that Jesus and his message are an obstacle they are an obstacle to our pride they are an obstacle to our ego they are an obstacle to our desire to do it ourselves. I can fix myself. I can figure this problem out myself. I mean, this isn't this isn't my hypothesis. This is, listen to how Scripture describes Jesus. Matthew 21, 40 to 40, 42 to 43, Jesus speaking about himself. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stones that the builder reje- the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, some translations may say the one who trips over this stone, who stumbles over this stone, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Romans 9.32, Paul's writing, he says, why? Talking about salvation, talking about genuine salvation, how some people fail to to obtain it some people fail to recognize it some people fail to appreciate it and he says why because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written behold i am laying in zion a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame first peter 2 6 to 8 for it stands in scripture behold i am laying in zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense 1 corinthians 18 for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing the gospel is offensive the gospel is offensive to people who don't want to hear that they're not in control. The gospel is offensive to the sin in me that wants to be the boss. The gospel is offensive to the sin in me that wants to be the center of the universe. The gospel is an offense to me when I just want things to go my way, to be easy, to be perfect, to be smooth. I want you all to serve me and the gospel says, no, lower yourself, make yourself humble, make yourself a servant of everyone. That's offensive to my ego. That's offensive to my schedule. That's offensive to my calendar. Do you know how busy my calendar is? And I'm supposed to set that aside to serve you all? That's offensive to me. See, the gospel will offend people. People don't want to hear you're a sinner. People don't want to hear you're broken. People don't want to hear you can't do a thing about it. Come on. If I work hard enough, I can change my fortune. Right? Rags to riches... Don't we love those movies? Don't we love those stories where someone through their own sheer grit and willpower changes their life? The Pursuit of Happiness, the Will Smith movie. Why did it do so well? Because everybody loves a true story about somebody who is homeless and through his own determined effort becomes fabulously well off. What a, what a great story. Well, the gospel says, no, it doesn't matter how hard you work. You can't earn this. You can't do a thing about your eternal condition on your own power. That's offensive to the sin within us. We will stumble over that. People will trip over that. So, the first thing when he says we put no obstacles is recognizing that an obstacle exists. And we need to approach Christ with humility. We need to approach Christ and set our ego aside. The Bible describes Christ as a stone of stumbling that people will fall over. Okay, okay, I can maybe accept that I won't, that I won't be able to change myself. So sure, I guess I'll, you know, it's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? I've played Monopoly, whatever, Jesus is Lord, I'll get saved. Okay, I'm still in charge. No, you're not. If Jesus is Lord, if you have professed your need to be saved, you're saying, okay, Jesus, you're in control now people are going to stumble over that. We don't like the idea of not being the boss. So we have to understand that we put no obstacle, but an obstacle exists. We have to be able to talk to people about it. And related to that, don't add to it. Don't add to the stumbling nature of the message of the gospel. Don't add to the offense that Jesus' truth already causes. The church has historically I mean, there's never been a day in an age when the church hasn't wrestled with this, hasn't struggled with this. There's a reason God talks about this idea so frequently. Consider Matthew 18, 6. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That word that we translate to for sin, or to sin, it's a Greek word that means To stumble to trip over Jesus says look if you cause someone to trip if you put an obstacle in their way to me that's not good there are consequences to that what else do we see Romans sixteen seventeen. I appeal to you brothers watch for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught avoid them he says be on the guard There are going to be teachers, there are going to be leaders who try and put obstacles in the way of the gospel, of the doctrine that you have received. Be on the guard for them and then avoid them. Don't tolerate this. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. First Corinthians 9, 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Obstacles exist. We cannot add to them. We cannot allow our pride. We cannot allow our preferences to add obstacles to people hearing the gospel, hearing sound doctrine, getting to encounter Christ, getting to hear his message, hear his truth. Surely we would never do that, right? We know better. Do you know real worship only comes with an organ? Churches that first introduced electric guitars and drums, not real worship. I got news. There's no organ in the Bible. So the organ is an option. I mean, right? Like, no, we do this. Oh, don't go to their church. They wear jeans. We've done this. The church has done this. Sometimes we do it over trivial stuff. Sometimes we do it over serious stuff. Well, in order to get saved, you have to believe in Jesus and you have to do these three or four things. Well, how do I know if I've done enough of those three or four things? Well, we'll kind of tell you along the way. And now people are freaked out wondering, have I done enough works to get saved? When the church, when different religions over time have distorted the gospel and added these obstacles, we've done the very thing we were called not to do. We cannot add obstacles to the gospel. Consider our own lives. Consider what Paul did in verses 4 through 10, where he lays out, Look, the evidence of my life gives credibility to my message. Does the evidence of your life give credibility to your message, or does it present an obstacle? If I am the most impatient, frustrated, quick-to-get-angry, short-tempered co-worker, and then I say, hey, you should come to church and hear about the peace of Jesus that defines my life. What? You're the most short-tempered person I know. I I would never describe you as peaceful. Why am I going to listen to you talk about peace? If I'm the most bitter person, the most greedy person, the most envious, if I can't hear about someone else getting something nice without thinking, why not me? How that's not fair. Hey, come talk to me about the contentment that you find in Jesus. Do our lives add credibility to our message or do they add an obstacle to our message? We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that it does not hinder our ministry. So the obstacles exist, we can't add to them. And, friends, do not apologize for the ones that do. Do not compromise the gospel to try and remove obstacles. What's he go on and say in verse 7? He's talking about, we put no obstacles in anyone's way. Then he lays out these difficulties, he lays out these trials, he lays out his response to it, and in there he says, speaking the truth. The church has, at time, added obstacles to people hearing the gospel. The church has also, tragically, far too frequently, including today, tried to pretend like the obstacles in there don't exist. Speaking the truth does not mean adding in our own caveats and adding in our own terms and conditions. Speaking the truth equally does not mean that we get to remove God's that we get to water down what he said to try and make it easier for people. Consider these verses. Acts 3, 13 to 19. This is is a crazy passage. Listen to what Peter and John say to people. They're in front of the crowds. They're, They're standing in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico was a very popular spot in the city, lots of people. So this isn't a private conversation with one person in a back alley. This is public. This is, this is the spotlights on them. And they say, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Okay, crowd can hear that. Don't have to balk at that. They're not stepping on anybody's toes. Then Peter and John say, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. "...but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers." But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Would you describe what they just said to the crowds as heartwarming, fuzzy, super friendly, very sensitive? Uh, No. He says, hey this God you claim to believe in. He's talking to Jewish people. He's talking to the people who would say, we are God's people. And he's saying, okay, the Messiah you claim to believe in, you murdered him. You denied him. You asked for a criminal instead. And then you went and you killed him because you acted in ignorance. How many of you want to be best friends with somebody who just said that to your face? No. No. But then they don't end there. They say, okay, repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. They present the truth in no uncompromising terms. This is is something we see throughout Scripture. Acts 20, 26 to 27. Therefore I testify, Paul's writing to the elders. He says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink back. I did not avoid. I did not turn away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So because of that, I'm innocent. What's this idea that he's getting at? If you go back to Ezekiel, we've talked about you can't read just the New Testament or the Old Testament. The Bible is one work by God. So if you go back to Ezekiel, you see that God says to Ezekiel, talking about the prophets, he says, you are Israel's watchmen on the tower, keeping watch out for the enemy. And he says, if you see the enemy coming and you say nothing, and it overwhelms the people and the people suffer, you're guilty. Their blood is on your hands because you in your role as watchmen said nothing about the impending problem. Now, if you tell people there's a problem coming, if you tell people there's a threat coming, if you tell people the enemy is coming and they do nothing with it, you're innocent because they chose to reject the truth of the message paul says to the church in acts 20 i'm innocent because i did not shrink back from the message i did not minimize the parts that aren't easy to hear i didn't pretend like this was some fluffy joy ride I didn't pretend like God didn't have standards. I didn't pretend like sin doesn't have a penalty. I am innocent because I declared to you the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink back from any part of it. When Paul is then later giving his instructions to Timothy on the church, on leading the church, on setting the church up while I'm planting churches in his two letters, what's he saying? in 1 Timothy 4? Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Exhortation is challenging, it's pushing someone, saying, Hey, here's where you are. I love you there. Here's where God calls you to be. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to exhortation. Devote yourself to teaching. Not pick and choose you know, the verses that are fun to listen to, read one verse out of context, and then give, you know, 20 minutes of funny stories related to it. No, that's not not how Paul calls Timothy to lead. That's not how Paul led. So when we consider this idea of we put no obstacles, it's we don't put the obstacles in the gospel. They exist. So we don't add to them, and we don't apologize for them. We declare the gospel of Christ with no distortion, with no tweaking. What has Paul already said in this letter that we looked at a few weeks ago? He says, we refuse to practice cunning, underhanded ways. We refuse to tamper with this message. That word tamper with is to dilute, to water down, to weaken. When we mess with the gospel... Well, you can get saved if you believe in Jesus, and if you give this many thousands of dollars, and if you dress a certain way, and if you do this, and if you... Like, okay, we've tampered with the gospel. We've missed our point. We've missed the point of our calling. We've missed the point of our identity in this earth, our role. Well, you know what? Hell's not real. Your sin isn't that big of a deal. They're more just like little mistakes. You didn't really do anything that different from the rest of humanity. You're a relatively good person, so just keep being good and it'll work out in the end. No, that's not the gospel. We've tampered with it. We've missed the point of our role. We've missed the point of our calling. He says, working with Jesus, we make our appeal. We put no obstacles. And he goes on and he says, speaking the truth, this is, is evidence of my ministry, that I am speaking the truth. This is who we are called to be. This is who Paul was called to be. This is who the church in Corinth was called to be. And this is who all of us, all Christians, all believers, all parts of the church today are called to be. This is not reserved for myself and the elders. Consider these verses about speaking the truth in love, Listen to Ephesians 4, 11-16. And He, He being God, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, the leadership, He gave the leadership to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The work of ministry, the building up the body, that has been assigned to all the saints. That has been assigned to all of us. What is part of that? We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, that was another part of what Paul says in that passage in 2 Corinthians. He says, We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How are we commendable? Through Affliction through hardship, through calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God. This is how the ministry ought to conduct itself. This is our eternal role in our temporary earthly roles, to walk in in the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk in fear of the Lord, to speak the truth in love, and it is not loving to add obstacles nor try and remove the ones that exist. If my daughter is sitting on our kitchen counter watching us cook and she grabs a knife and tries to stick it in the outlet, do I say, well, because I love her, I didn't want to get in her way? You know, because I love her, I wanted to let her continue what she's doing because clearly it made her happy. No, that's absurd. Because I love her, I will intervene and stop her. Love is not watering down the truth. Love is not pretending like it does not exist. Love is not ignoring the problem and hoping it goes away. Love is not making it harder to get to Jesus. Love is not putting up walls to keep people out. Love is not living itself in such a way that my own life gives you reason to doubt what I say. That is not love. The church is called to be co-laborers with Christ, working with Him, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. A ministry that each and every one of us, every man, every woman, every child, every family takes personal ownership for says, God has brought me to this body for a reason. God has placed me in my home for a reason. God has placed me in my neighborhood for a reason. I am called to be his ambassador there to make every effort to build the church up, speaking the truth in love. This is commendable. Consider John 7, the very end of John 7 into the very beginning of John 8. The famous story, if you know it, if you don't, Jesus' teaching... And the leadership, the leadership of the people bring a woman caught in adultery before Jesus. They interrupt his lesson. They come barging through the doors of the sanctuary. They knock over the camera, and they say, hey, here's a woman caught in sin. Jesus didn't have cameras set up. He wasn't live streaming. We can chuckle at that. It's okay. They interrupt Jesus' teaching, and they say, we caught this woman in sin. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? Jesus. And Jesus simply says, look, let the person without sin throw the first stone. You realize, like, we realize Jesus could have ripped those Pharisees. He could have ripped that leadership to shreds, right? In front of all the people they were tasked with leading, Jesus could have listed by name all of their sins. Jesus could have gone scorched earth on those people. And he didn't. He extended mercy to them. He extended grace to them, but he also did not allow them to compromise the truth. And so they leave one by one. And then we're left with the woman who's caught in sin. And Jesus does not say, you know what, it wasn't really sin. You just made a mistake. We'll forget about it. He doesn't say, okay, we'll overlook at this one time. He says, okay, look, do they condemn you? She says, no. He says, neither do I condemn you. He extends grace, he extends mercy, he extends love. And then he says, "Now go and sin no more. He still calls her to a standard of truth. He still calls her to a standard of holiness. He does not compromise the message. Love is not drifting in either direction. Love is sticking to what God has laid out unapologetically. Consider 1 Corinthians 13 1 to 11, the most famous wedding passage that has absolutely nothing to do with weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to I mean, it's applicable in weddings because it's applicable in all lives. Don't get me wrong. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 11. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What's going on in, in chapter 12? We're jumping right into if I do these things, if I exhibit this behavior, if I show these, these abilities... What's going on in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians? He's laying out instructions on how the church relates to one another. He's laying out instruction on how Christians serve one another and work together for the church. He's laying out instructions on the body where he says, look, this isn't about any one of you. We're all members of the body. So he is talking about corporate body. He's talking about plurality of people. And right after he lays out these gifts, right after he lays out these callings, right after he lays out these functions of the body, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Right after he's finished describing how you relate to one another in your different roles, in your different giftings, in your different functionalities within the church, he says, if you're not doing it with love, it's pointless. How long would you guys sit here if I got up here and instead of talking, just started smacking a metal trash can, into the mic? One, I think George and the sound guys would cut me off. But you don't want to listen to that. So if I'm not preaching, if I am not using the gifts that God has given me and as He has called me, if I'm not doing it from a place of deep love for the Lord, deep love for the glory of Christ, deep love for you all, I'm wasting my breath. And I've missed the point of sharing the beauty of God's Word with you all. You could be the most generous giver in our church. What's he say? He says, if I give away all I have, you could be funding 99.9% of our church budget. And if you're not doing it from a place of deep, all-consuming love for the Lord and all-consuming love for this body, you're wasting it. You could speak with all wisdom. You could speak with all prophecy. You could have faith to move mountains. And if you're not doing it with love, You're doing nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. How many people would squirm, perhaps myself including, if we read that before every church meeting? Well, for every vote, before every decision, love does not insist on its own way. Is that how we approach church? It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Your favorite preacher of all time is either dead. Or will be dead the best speaker you've ever heard your favorite author your favorite band they're either dead or they're gonna be dead they're gonna pass away love remains what's he say when the perfect comes the partial will pass away when I was a child I spoke like a child I thought like a child I reasoned like a child when I became a man I gave up childish ways to refuse to love, to withhold love, is childish. You're not a full-grown adult. I'm not a mature man of God if I withhold love, if I'm not driven by love. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I behaved like a child. But we've been called to maturity. We've been called to grow up in Christ, And Christ is an unflinching, unyielding, unapologetic, unchanging standard of truth that is presented in perfect love. This is what Paul lays out for the church in Corinth. This is what we are called to today. And here is, let's acknowledge the most emotionally difficult part of all of this. Because this is not easy. This is not going to be easy. What does he say in this passage as he concludes this passage? He's laid out, we work together with Jesus so that our ministry will not be found to be at fault. We commend ourselves through love and through speaking the truth. And then he lays out at the very end the hardest part about all of this. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. Guys, the the simple painful reality is, in our role as ambassadors, in our eternal role as proclaimers of the message of gospel, in our role as heralds of truth, We are going to encounter people who are not restricted by us. We're going to present the gospel fairly. We're going to present the gospel truthfully. We're going to present the gospel plainly. We're going to say, You're a sinner just like me. I'm no better than you. I'm no worse than you. We both need a savior. I'm telling you, I know him. I found freedom. Do you want to be free? And they're going to say, No. And it's going to be crappy, it's going to be miserable. When you pour out your heart for your best friend in college for four years and you invest in him and you have conversations that go till three in the morning, four in the morning, and you're like, he's so close. He's right there. We've been working on this for four years. We've been praying for him for four years. Man, before we go our separate ways, what do you think? Do you want to be free? Nah. I think I'm good. That's hard that's hard it's hard when it's a child it's hard when it's a friend it's hard when it's a family member it's hard when it's a loved one and it should be hard when it's a stranger it should be hard when it's somebody in Starbucks it should be hard when it's the guy at Lowe's when it's the person at Meyer. it should always be hard we should always say hey look our heart is wide open to you you're not restricted by us But we're going to have to recognize that people are restricted by their own affections. Paul's reminding the people, remember the context that we looked at at the very beginning. He's saying to the church, look, here's the true message. Here's the true gospel. The only restriction in your life is your heart that's following these false teachers. So I think sometimes we're going to have to acknowledge the painful. But where should that drive us to? Don't end there. Don't stop there. Where should that drive us to? It should drive us back to verse one of chapter six, working alongside him. We present our ministry with no fault because ultimately it's not up to me to save anyone. Ultimately, it's not up to any of you to save anyone. You cannot, I cannot. I could be the greatest preacher this world's ever known and we have way too much video evidence to the contrary. of when I blow out mics and trip and drop things. I still can't save anyone. We could be the greatest church this world has ever known, and we do not have it within ourselves to save anyone. So when we encounter these people, when we encounter these loved ones, these friends, these family members, these strangers who own heart, their own affections, place restrictions on them, Do not grow despondent. Do not grow discouraged. Do not grow hopeless. Do not grow fearful. Recognize that we are laboring alongside Him. And so we will continue to speak the truth in love. We will continue to be patient. We will continue to be pure. And we will trust Him that He is working that He is making our feeble efforts effective, that He is working all things to His plan, that He loves them far more than we do, and that He will ultimately do what brings Jesus glory. And that should fill us with hope. That should fill us with encouragement. That should fill us with joy. That should fill us with strength, knowing that we're working alongside Him. And so we're going to follow His example, and we're not going to stop until we die or He comes back. And that's awesome. And that's fun. And that's hard. And that's tiring. But that's our eternal call. And it's a privilege and a joy. So as we consider these things this week, apply the Acts model as we pray through this passage, as we're growing in prayer. I've loved getting to pray individually with different people, talk to different people about prayer, I I truly feel like this is a church of deep, meaningful prayer. I, I love praying with you all and hearing the praise, hearing the confession, hearing the gratitude, and hearing the willingness to ask our Father for things. So let's continue to grow in prayer as we apply those things. We're going to read two chapters this week, all of us. Habakkuk 3 and 1 Corinthians 3. As we consider these lessons from the sermon, as we consider these lessons from this passage in First Corinthians. We don't know where to read, we're gonna read Habakkuk three and 1 Corinthians three. We don't know what to look for, look for the sermon. We're gonna to continue to remember and internalize Acts four thirteen. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they realized they were common, or they perceived they were common uneducated men, and they were astonished. So they concluded they had been with Jesus and gave glory to God. Don't be afraid to be a common, uneducated person. Speak with boldness. You never know what God's doing in someone's heart, what He's making ready. And then as we reflect, reflect on, on either one of two things. Reflect on the joy and privilege to work together with Christ. Verse one, working with Him. That's awesome. I'm a coworker with Jesus. He's got the office right down the hall from me. That's cool. Come on. Let's just reflect on that. And then ask yourself, does the way you conduct your life, like Paul says in verses 4 through 10, does the way you conduct your life give evidence that you truly believe it's a privilege to work alongside Jesus? Or does the way you conduct your life give indication that you see it more as a chore or a burden you're unequipped for? If it's the first one, Man, praise God. Celebrate. If it's the second one, your prayer is simple. Lord, teach me to delight in working alongside you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you love us. We thank you for your patience with us, your goodness towards us. We thank you for the privilege it is to work alongside you the privilege it is to labor in your field for your kingdom. Thank you for loving the people you've placed us among, God. Give us your heart for them. Teach us to love the people of this world like you do. And in that love, Lord, teach us not to place any other obstacles in their way. And give us boldness not to apologize for the ones that exist. We want to be holy. We want to be pure. We want to be walking in your power. We want to be walking in step with the Holy Spirit. We need you to lead us in doing that. So we ask you for these things that Jesus may be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray.